Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. This is so funny because I actually said this to a, a girlfriend when I first met Bob. I was like, he's not good on paper. <laughs> but there's something about him. Like you were, you were coming out of a, a hard stretch of years, but you were so clear and focused on what you wanted to be and how you were going to evolve and heal yourself. I was like, oh, like here's somebody who's really put in the work and he's very focused on committing to that work. So, you know, a lot of other things have to be present, like, you know sense of humor match and obvious chemistry match, all those things have to be present. But, you know, there was this thing like, oh, like he's interested in self-improvement and he's going about it in a really cool way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Alex and Bob, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having us. We're so happy to be here. Yeah, it is wonderful to have you both here. You've both uh, been guests on separate occasions where we've talked about both of your stories. I think I've both, I, I may have indiv- interviewed both of you together as well. I can't remember at this point because yeah. there's been so many interviews. Um, you guys have a new book out, uh, which we will talk about in quite a bit of detail. But before we get to that, I want to start by asking both of you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you have both made throughout your life and your career? Oh my God, that's such a great question. Go ahead. All right, I'll go. I'll take it. Um, so my father was a ceramic engineer which is in some ways sort of a material science. So there are people who formulate um, cements, different kinds of cements with different tensile strengths and different um, refractory qualities. Refractory is essentially high temperature ceramics. So um, the steel industry depends on it quite a bit. The energy industry depends on it for insulation and all of these things. And so I grew up around a guy who talked about, you know, actually I went with him on mine inspections. So sometimes he was, he, he was a a buyer for a company, a mineral company that kind of fed into the refractories business. And then he also started at the age of, I think it was, he was close to 60, if not over 60, when he started his own business that my brother, my brother's also a ceramic engineer and my brother now runs that business. So my dad, um, I think one of the biggest influences he had on me was he deeply regretted not starting a business at a younger age. And it was kind of my mother's tension around risk and money and all of these things that sort of kept him from doing it. But it was something that he he said to me over and over and over again before he passed, like just how comfortable his retirement was and how satisfying he satisfied he felt with his life because he had started his own business. And one of his big regrets in life was not starting it sooner. Mm-hmm. He also... Um, really wanted to be a historian, um, but he became a ceramic engineer because he went to university on the GI Bill. And he asked, okay, what um, major will get me a job 100% insured? And that's how he ended up doing, because he really wanted security and stability. And so this sort of combination, I think, in him of choosing something that has security and has a sort of a strong sort of, you know, theory of the game, you know, kind of at the middle of it, like I am going to do this and get a job and kind of do my passion and my part time that still shows up in me. And then also risk taking and frankly, risk taking later in life, I just turned 55 and I've only been self-employed, I think for about the past, you know, two, three years, other before that I've always been associated with another, um, another institution. And my mother was a school teacher. Um, I think of her generation, that's not surprising. All women were, most women in her generation were either secretaries or school teachers. That was sort of the safe thing. And then she was a mom, you know, so she, she didn't really have, I don't think a strong, um, sense of career. And I think there's some regret there for her as well. Actually, we haven't really talked about it much. Hmm. Um, I come from a family of educators and artists. My dad was a high school principal at the same high school for 25 years. My mom was a substitute teacher and um, an ESL teacher 
for many years, but she was also an artist. And they both were really clear from my whole life, like do what you love and the money will follow. So mm-hmm. even though my, it's, my dad was really groomed to be an executive, his father was a, a you know, vice president of a corporation in the 50, very mad men kind of life my grandfather had. And my dad kind of flouted, you know, the plan for him by not going to business school and instead becoming a teacher. And they were always just really clear, like, you know, what are you passionate about? Dedicate yourself to it. You'll figure it out. Yeah. It's interesting. My dad also, I think one of the biggest impacts he had on me was he always repeated to me over and over again that success was personally defined. It wasn't defined by society. And it was really about how happy you were with your life, how satisfied you were with your life. And, you know, talking to my contemporaries, you know, whose parents like push them to be professionals or push them to be successful in that Mad Men style that you're talking. My dad was, my dad was Mad Men era. Like he could have been, you know, he was, I think I once did the math, like he was exactly the same age as Don Draper. Like they were Mm -hmm exactly the same age. And I think I've, I've always been really grateful to my dad for, for pushing me to, to define success on my own terms and not on society's terms. Uh-huh. I mean, both of you received such unusual advice for parents to, to pass on to their children uh, about sort of making their way in the world at an early age. Um, so two questions come from that. One, when you got that advice, when you were really young, uh, you know, how did it land and, and how has your interpretation of that changed with age or understanding of that change with age? Because like, I think about the work that I do, which, you know, I, my, my roommate always gives me shit. He's like, you write off everything as new age bullshit, but he said 90% of the work you do with unmistakable would fall into that category. Um, you know, and I, and, you know, I say that sort of facetiously, you know, joking, cause it, that is true that like there's a spiritual component to what I do. But the reason I asked the question is because I think that if somebody had tried to impart some of what I've learned from working on this project to me when I was in college, I would have literally been like, this all sounds like a bunch of new age bullshit. Why are you trying to tell me this? So I wonder how your understanding of this messaging that you got when you were younger has changed with age. And also, how did those messages end up impacting the relationship between the two of you? You know, I remember actually expressing irritation, not to my parents, but to friends in college and in the years after college. So I was like, God, I wish somebody had just told, would, could just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Like I have so much freedom. I mean, what a, what a privileged complainer I was. <laughs> I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I, you know, I fumbled along trying a lot of different things, moving to different cities, trying different careers. And it's interesting, like what I do now, you know, I am an author and I am an artist, but I've been a coach for 20 years now. And most of my career is not something that was even a career option when I was in high school and college. So I, you know, I think I was maybe in the the first early wave of, you know, health coaching and then leadership coaching. So... It's now I'm looking back and I'm like, oh, well, it's, you know, I'm glad they didn't tell me what to do because I've stumbled into what my life's work is. That wasn't even a possibility before. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's showed up for me in different ways. I should say, like, I feel like I got very different educations from my mother and from my father. Um, My mother, you know, she's, I I love my mother and she's a very, tense and sometimes difficult person for me to deal with. And there's a, there's a, a fair bit, I think of, you know, intergenerational trauma, let's say like it, we, we pass stuff on to our kids. And, and so for my dad, I was getting this message of, you know, define success by, by yourself, you know, not based on society. And for my mother, she's just very tense about money. She's very tense about, um, I think even social standing sometimes though she probably wouldn't describe it that way. And, there was a part of me which constantly felt like I was going to be boxed in. Like they were, you know, they wanted to define me. I wanted, they wanted to define me with an, an er, you know, like he is a something on the, you know, like they wanted to give me a label, give me a career. And every time I would show the slightest interest in something, they would get really excited and say, Oh, you're that now, you know? And similar to Alex, I have wandered around quite a bit. And I think 
it's been very stressful for my mother, especially to watch, you know, <laughs> like, um, especially cause there've been some very lean years in my career as well. Some years where, you know, let's call them where I've been between things, you know, between, um, you know, I was design director at a major newspaper and then for a couple of years I was kind of nothing, you know, like I didn't, you know, I, I was searching for that next thing. And for me, again, I was always trying to self-define that and both and also have the confidence and the clarity to pursue those things. And so I think, you know, it, it's interesting. It's only in a f- in recent years, I think of myself as a late bloomer in some ways, but it's only in recent years and largely thank you, thanks to Alex and our relationship where I have been able to really stick with a thing that really means something to me rather than, you know, cause I've been fortunate in that I'm kind of smart. I'm tall, I'm white, you know, what, you know, I'm, I have an MBA, you know, like I have some things that make falling into an okay job relatively easy, which is both a blessing and a curse. Cause you can fall into those jobs and then not find your way out again. And now I think even with this book, I'm sort of, I'm going through a period of reinvention again. Well, I don't know if I answered your question, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I think maybe yeah, I, wanted yeah, to I totally did. Yeah. I mean, I, I also wondered, you know, mm-hmm. like sort of, um, I mean, you kind of alluded to it, Bob, I'd be curious to hear from your perspective, Alex, like how these messages that you got growing up, um, have influenced your relationship between the two of you. Uh, the other thing I wonder, you know, Alex, you talked about this idea of, you know, do what you love and the money will follow, but you also made a point to, you know, note that you were making a very privileged complaint and I couldn't let that go because, you know, I, I always have felt that the the one thing that I feel very responsible for is to make a statement, the fact that so often the people who come here and talk to people um, and share their work on Unmistakable Creative are often speaking to people who are in positions of privilege. Um, you know, you look at sort of all the outlier advantages that, you know, people like you and people like I get. I mean, I grew up, you know, the son of a college professor, you know, who instilled rigid discipline in me. I mean, there are a lot of sort of hidden benefits there that you can't replicate for somebody else. So I wonder what you'd say about those two things. Um, I'll go with the the privilege part first. Um, you know, both Bob's family and my family benefited from the GI Bill, which took my grandfather, like, you know, my grandfather became a doctor in the army. And that certainly would have been a lot more challenging had he not been a white guy. And I can, you know, it's just easy to directly relate back just two generations. Oh, like that was, I mean, your, your father was my grandfather's age basically. Mm -hmm. So, but there was a huge boost up because of the world war II benefits that the soldiers in our family got. And then, you know, just the fact that my parents were back to the land hippies whose parents were paying for their college, you know, that speaks to a certain amount of privilege too. (laughs) Um, And, you know, my, you know, I, I pretty much paid for my undergrad, but my dad co-signed on the loan for me to go to culinary school, which was another huge step. And then a leap towards, you know, the second part of my educational career and then supersize me, you know, that all happened because my family could co-sign on another educational loan for me. So yes, tons of privilege in both of our histories. Um, but, you know, in this relationship with you, and I've, we talk about it all the time, like we're both so extremely grateful for each other because we've both been married before <laughs> and our previous marriages uh, obviously did not go so well. Wow. Um they were, I'll say, I'll focus on the positive. What I love about being with you is your um, consistent ability and desire to self-reflect. And for us to, con- what's that expression? Kaizen, that Japanese yeah. idea. like Continuous improvement. Continuous improvement, like always better. And not in a way to beat yourself up or to beat me up, but who are we now? And this real... Um, desire to evolve in a compassionate, fun, self-knowing way as individuals, but also like how can we evolve together as a couple? And that has not been possible in my past relationships. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I don't know that I can even add to that. I, I will say <laughs> that both world wars benefited my family a great deal. Um, that my my grandfather on my mother's side, he was born in a what's called what you would call a coal camp in eastern Kentucky, which is near in the billion dollar coal field, the big the big sort of um, where every mining movie ever took place, right in, in sort of Kentucky, West Virginia. And um, he grew up very very poor in a coal camp, and left home at a young age, I think at the age of like 14 or 15, he left home, which is crazy because that's how old our son is now, or almost <laughs> oh my gosh. crazy to think about. And then he became a dentist by essentially enlisting in the army during the first world war, um, never went overseas. Um, but then he became a, you know, a landowner and a, and, and one of the leading lights of Charleston, West Virginia. My mother was born kind of a debutante in a way in West Virginia because of that. And then my dad was in the, was in the army air corps during the second world war. He also never went overseas, um, and he's from Wilmington, North Carolina. And I always think about think back on that. If you don't know, if you may, your listeners may or may not know the history of Wilmington, North Carolina, but it's the the site of one of the or of the largest one of the actually the only political coup that ever took place in the United States took place in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it was a bunch of disenfranchised white people or poor white people or the white people of the town um, essentially murdering the black people who had taken who had been elected into public office and who were, and were doing rather well, sort of similar to what happened in, in Oklahoma in 1921. But so I always think about like my dad as a white man raised in that town versus being raised a black man in that town. And then also the access to the GI bill, which is, you know, it was theoretically available to black men, but it was really not really not available to the majority of them. Um, and so the, the, my dad was raised without a father and so the the fortunes that my my personal fortunes being raised upper middle class like would not have happened without those two world wars and without and without the privilege that that was bestowed upon us through those and then I think our relationship to me I think you know I've heard this over and over again that choosing who to marry is the most important decision you'll ever make yeah. um, I ignore that advice for uh, the first couple marriages of mine. <laughs> I, I married the person who made me feel the most excited and passionate. Um, mm. And that didn't lead to really good. It, they weren't people who necessarily had the same life goals that I had or had the same yeah. or who believed in me in the same way. And I remember meeting Alex. I'd given up on relationships at that point. And um, so I was in my 40s and I was like, ah, you know, some people get them, some people don't. It's all right. I can I can get by without and then I met her and I was like, wow, she's beautiful. She treats me well. She seems to really like me. These were novel things for me in relationship. <laughs> right? And uh, and also like she's up to amazing things and I like her and I want her to have, you know, like, and there's something about our relationship where I, I think without hesitation, it's very easy for me to, you know, if Alex says, I want to do something, okay, go do it. You know, like mm -hmm. we don't, we, we have, and you know, it didn't develop overnight. It's developed over the years, but this trust in each other and this belief in each other. And I also know that if I'm ever feeling insecure, like I can go to Alex and she will make me feel better. You know, like, yeah. Either she'll tell me what I'm doing is a stupid idea and I should just, and, you know, you'll give me, you'll give me healthy critique of the idea, right? Like that's that, oh yeah, maybe you should try this other thing. Mm -hmm. Or you, as more often than not, as you, you're just like, no, 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 you're, you're on the right track. Keep going. I think we have similar creative demons. Yeah. We have the same flavors of imposter syndrome and self-doubt. So it's very easy for us to support each other because we're so familiar <laughs> with the problem. And we tend to oscillate. I'll have it one week and, and then she'll be yeah. able to talk me down and then she'll have it the next week and I can talk her down. It's best. Yeah. That's the best way to do it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I appreciate the fact that you made you know note of the fact that this is one of the most important decisions you'll make. I just finished writing this article on, on uh, our blog about the five most important decisions you make in your life. This, of course, being one of them, and I thought it was particularly interesting to reflect on you know the decision of marriage in the wake of this whole Indian matchmaking fiasco. Um, which, to me, I'm just amused by the fact that not a single person matched. And basically, I had this gigantic criticism of the entire process. I was like. You're treating this like we're hiring people for jobs. That's why it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that I, that I wonder. I mean, I think you guys have really alluded to what it is that makes a marriage work. Uh, so on that note, what, do you, what is it that doesn't make it work as people who've chosen wrongly in the past? Like, what do you think people do wrong? And, you know, I, I don't know how much you know about this matchmaking thing, but I'd be curious just to hear your take on a situation where you're literally looking effectively at people's resumes you know, one of my, my roommates, like, what's the difference between a LinkedIn profile and bio data? I said nothing. It would just be adding your romantic preferences to your LinkedIn profile. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is so funny because I actually said this to a, a girlfriend when I first met Bob. I was like, he's not good on paper. <laughs> 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 but there's something about him. Like you were, you were coming out of a, a hard stretch of years but you were so clear and focused on what you wanted to be and how you were going to evolve and heal yourself. I was like, Oh, like here's somebody who's really put in the work and he's very focused on committing to that work. So, you know, a lot of other things have to be present, like, you know, sense of humor match and obvious chemistry match, all those things have to be present. But, you know, there was this thing like, Oh, like he's interested in self-improvement and he's going about it in a really cool way that was very multidisciplinary and which I loved. Um, and then what, what do I think people do wrong? And this is perfect segue, but, mm-hmm. but I, I see it happen all the time. And I certainly did it in my past relationships, just assuming, you know, the person and what they think and feel you know, trying to mind read or assuming that you are mind reading them and you know what they're thinking rather than having difficult conversations and being clear in your communication is one of the most common problems. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I 
I, by the way, I agree. I didn't look very good on paper at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> right, neither do I most of the time. In my life, I was, I was coming out of some hard years. And I think, you know, I think of, you know, it's weird to maybe use a stock metaphor, but, you know, like you bet on the stock, the directionality of the stock, not the, not the current value of the stock, right? Yeah. Like that, you know, and, 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 and I think that's, that happens on multiple levels, but it's really focusing on someone who you have the ability to grow with. We actually, um, actually early in our relationship, we went and saw, uh, I think she was, well, she was still taking clients. So I don't think she does anymore, but Esther Perel, um, mm-hmm. an amazing therapist who your listeners probably have read her, yeah. read her books. She's incredible. And we saw her for one session, sort of a whole afternoon with her. And one of the things she said is like, look, if you're going to be together for a while, you're not going to have one relationship. You're going to have many relationships. And um, and those will, those relationships might have different agreements. They might have different, um, uh, flavors. They might have different goals. And I think one of the things that we've done, and maybe this even led to our, led to this book, but is we've always said that any topic of conversation is up for conversation, right? We can discuss anything. It doesn't mean, and what I, the mistake that I see some people go in to conversations with though, is that. They go into the conversation with, this is the outcome that I want, and this is the outcome that I must have, and I will not be happy unless I get that outcome. That's not to say that, you know, compromise, you know, because compromise can be, ha- can happen in a couple of different ways. I heard somebody describe this recently. I, w- I wish I could remember how they described it because it was so brilliant, but essentially compromise can want, can feel like both people losing, right? You can, you can sort of feel like, or even one person losing and one person getting their way. Or compromise can actually feel like both people getting their way because the relationship becomes healthier and stays intact. And we've always had this, um, not 50, 50, not, well, I'll, you know, show me what you got and I'll take what I got, you know, but it's more like, no, I'm a hundred percent into this and I'm a hundred percent into you and everything, everything, you know, from where we live to, you know, like our lifestyle is really up for conversation because what we want, we know that there's a, (laughs) you know, there's an expiration date on everything, right? You know, it's a process. The relationship is a process. The relationship is a journey that we pass through together. And I don't want to get stuck, you know, just like I don't want to get stuck in a job that's meaningless. I don't want to get stuck in a relationship that's meaningless. But that doesn't mean this, it, that doesn't mean I can't be in the same relationship with the same. You know, I can't be in the in relationship with the same person, but I could be in different relationship with that person. Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, you're right, Alex. That was a perfect segue to, to talking specifically about uh, you know, the subject of the book, um, Radical Alignment. And where I want to start is, you know, at the very beginning with what you talk about the foundations, what you d- define as the foundations of great communication. And you go into the taxonomy of poor communication, where you talk about three areas, misunderstanding, emotional misalignment, and topic creep. Can you expand on those for people listening? What are those and how do they impact our conversations? So <laughs> she just pointed to me. Um, so uh, now, now, I, now I have to go back to my own book and remember. So misunderstanding, um, what was it? Emotional misalignment and topic creep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So misunderstanding obviously is just, it's just a, a, a failure to communicate data, right? That, uh, that I think you're saying one thing and really you're saying another thing. Either we're using words in novel ways or words mean different things to me than they do to you. I've seen this happen a lot in debate. Like I recently re-listened to um, Sam Harris and Ezra Klein kind of go at it over uh, the bell curve, the book, The Bell Curve. And um, Sam Harris had this like really annoying habit to me of constantly talking about, um, oh, you misunderstand me. You misunderstand me. You misunderstand me. When really he was misunderstanding Klein, you know, like, anyway, I don't know. That's my own, that's my own stuff. We should leave that aside. But <laughs> the idea is that, is that we're just kind of, we're just missing each other. We're using words in different ways and we're not, we're not sort of getting, getting clarity. The next stage, which is to me really the most important piece is really that sense of I'm with you because I think we need to disagree. We need to disagree in order to test our cognitive bias. You know, we're so driven by cognitive biases and, and, and cognitive errors that we just don't make good decisions often without discussing them with other people and having and having the flaws in our thinking pointed out. Like we really need that. It's one of the reasons I think um, company culture can be so is so important. Is you know in a culture of embracing disagreement and especially as we're welcoming more diverse teams together with people with a wider variety of perspectives, we're going to actually probably have more disagreement. That's just sort of a 
the nature of, of um, cognitive diversity in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but you, on the other side of that, you need to actually make an agreement together or, or make, or, or come to some kind of sense of like, oh, we're on the same team. We've decided the path forward and we're going to move forward together. And so, and which is much, much more of an emotional experience. And it usually says more about how we feel about each other, whether that person has our best interest at heart, whether they trust us, you know, like someone who I, I love and adore disagreeing with me is so much less, you know, um, difficult in some ways or so, or I'm, I, I listen to it with so much more, um, I don't know, so, so much more generosity, let's say, and it changes me more potentially than somebody who I come into thinking that they don't like me or that they don't share my values or that they're from a different world. I, I feel like I'm stumbling over this description a little bit, but no, that's great. No, so, that's fine. You, the, I mean, you go into like these, you know, foundations of emotional intelligence in this first chapter, and there was two in particular that caught my attention. I, I think it would take too long to go over all of them, but um, you talked about two things, feeling your emotions and creating the space between feeling and acting. And later in the book, you reference a concept called somatic awareness and I, I think the reason that struck me in particular was because I know that the moment I either receive an email, for example, the other day I got an, an email from investors saying, hey, we, we just want to give you an update on the fund. And my first instinct was to text my mentor and be like, is this something I should be worried about? Like it almost ruined my weekend because I didn't have any context. It was like, oh, um, but I mean, that happens in other uncomfortable conversations too, where it'll be like, oh, I'm about to be broken up with. I can just tell from this text message, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Uh, so explain to me how one, that doesn't become my response. Um, but, but talk about this idea of somatic awareness and, and, and actually creating that space between feeling and acting. Cause I don't think all of us are very good at that. No, we are not. Well, well, let's, let's take it back to your childhood. Did anyone teach you? to tune into and feel how your body was responding to different emotions. With my mom? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, that's, I think that is, I'll speak for Americans. (laughs) I'll speak for white lady Americans like myself, basically. Nobody teaches us that. How about you? Anybody teach you that, Bob? No. No. Okay. No. As a matter of fact, it was the opposite. In fact, we were taught to suppress. Yeah. Just calm down. Yeah. Just calm down. You're too sensitive. In fact, we were taught that we shouldn't have any boundaries and we shouldn't trust the physical responses that our body. And, you know, the the belly is the second brain. It is your intuitive brain. You know, you have a gut feeling about something. You have nervous knots, etc. Your body's constantly telling you information to weave into your thought processes. But most of us don't learn that. I didn't start learning it until my mid to late 20s. And I think I was ahead of the curve there only because I got really, really ill and I had to go a a lot of different alternative routes. And one of them was, oh, I actually, what I'm feeling is anxiety. And oh, I've had anxiety most of my life. Interest. Okay. What does anxiety feel like? What does that mean? What am I responding to? So, and it's so funny. I mean, we were talking about privilege earlier, and I keep having this conversation with different girlfriends. Um, you know, the idea of white fragility, like, if I wonder how different it would be if we were taught at an early age to feel our feelings and be more comfortable with uncomfortable feelings and just to get more skilled at feeling discomfort. Like, I think that would be a huge difference if we could get practiced at that. We'd be more resilient, we'd be more aware, and we'd be less afraid to talk about tough topics. Yeah. It's like I've noticed in a lot of my life, I've, I've interpreted discomfort as danger. I think they even talk about that in, the, in she even talks about that in White Fragility that when something, when a topic comes up that feels just somewhat, you know, makes me feel some anxiety, makes me feel some tension, makes me potentially even feel some guilt or some, some shame or something that I'll interpret that as I can potentially anyway, interpret that as a threat, which then produces like fight or flight. And so to put this in like John Gottman's, you know, four horsemen terms, it either makes you want to stonewall and not talk about something, right. Just sort of move away. 
or you know it makes you want to get super defensive which which means usually going on the attack of the person who's making you and I'm putting that in quotation marks feel that way and i think one of the reasons one of the things i've gotten a lot better at over the years and i think in this relationship especially is because we talk about anything because we can talk about anything to actually go into conversations that feel somewhat dangerous to actually make sure that oh if there's a conversation that feels like it might be dangerous to have let's make sure we have that conversation because there's actually you know on the other side of that conversation is is usually the good stuff um and i think you know in some relationships it's breakup you know maybe might it might be that thing that's on the other side you might you know and there are many relationships i've had in my life where some form of breakup um either romantic relationship or leaving a job or something like that might have been something that i could have done sooner or you find that there's actual alignment and actual there's actually a solution on the other side uh-huh. and I, the second part of your question you know how do you go how do you create a gap and I, it, it just reminded me that part of my strategy in life to deal with anxiety was to constantly be in motion and to not take time to think about <laughs> or relate. feel <laughs> you know what i'm talking about <laughs> yep i can relate yeah i'm i'm a doer I am constantly doing, um, which led to extreme adrenal and thyroid problems, by the way. And being able to, again, sit with the unknowing, the uncertainty, ask more questions, and even, you know, work, you know, being able to have an adult relationship with you where I don't have to know all the answers. Oh, actually, I have a partner that I can trust who will help me figure out the next best thing to do rather than me just bum rushing in and doing the first most obvious thing. So let's talk about what you call the, the threefold path to alignment, but you know, as I actually had some very specific examples that I wanted to ask you about, um, which we'll get into when you actually, we'll get into the actual framework of how we have these conversations, but um, you talk about the right conversation, right time and right people. And the first thought that came to mind is when's the best time to ask my dad for money? <laughs> like, and I know, you know, usually it's, you know, when my mom is not around, that's, you know, basically the right people. <laughs> and then the right conversation is dad, I need money. But all joking aside, uh, talk to me about that in a bit more detail, because I feel like many of us will have the wrong conversation at the wrong time with the right people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that this shows up in, in both personal and professional. And I think when I when we first sort of came up with that particular framework, we were thinking in a professional context, because we do a lot of work with you know business leaders. And um, I, I personally do a lot of like facilitated works where I'll facilitate meetings or I'll facilitate um, kind of sensitive conversations um, with leadership teams. And the right conversation and the right people shows up in a couple different ways. Often it shows up in the beginning when I'm just you know, people try to bring me in for a project. And then I find out that I'm the person I'm talking to doesn't have the authority to, to sign checks and bring me in for the project. So, um, so it can be as really as simple as that. Like, are, am I talking to the person who has the authority to do what needs to be done? And the same shows up if I'm trying to change a policy inside of an organization, um, that do we, you know, do we have the right, um, people at the table, the people with the right authority. And I alluded to this, I think previously when I talked about diversity on teams, that the other thing I think we really miss a lot in, in business organizations, especially now, is not having people who have the right perspective um, sitting at the table. And so I will frequently sit with leadership teams who are trying to make a bunch of decisions for the people who are on the front lines of the organization. And they're assuming that they know a lot about those people's perspective that they just don't know. And so the, the simple act of inviting somebody in, bringing somebody in who has a different perspective, who um, maybe looks like your customer or, you know, is representative of your customer or representative of your workforce as you're making decisions about them can be hugely important. And then, you know, and this shows up, I think, in personal conversations as well, right? You know, like, am I, do I have the right partner, you know, in, in, in this, in this marriage or in this life? Uh, am I, am I, am I asking dad for money or mom for money? I guess that, that also shows up. Um, and then the right time is so essential as well. And in our personal relationship, one of the rules, the sort of folk rules that we break all the time is that idea that you should not go to bed angry. Mm-hmm. and. Not that we get 
super angry at each other much. Yeah, a little bit. I think we get annoyed more than angry. But we've gotten, I've gotten used to personally, because I, I was the kind of person who needed to resolve everything. You know, like, I can't sleep if you don't like me anymore, you know, if you don't like me again. And I'm going to, I'm, so I'm going to keep us, keep you up late and argue this thing until you like me again, until we've resolved it, which of course is a recipe for complete failure. Um, and, I'm terrible talking about anything important after 9 p.m. Yeah. Just don't even try. You just pass out. I, I'm done. You're just done. And so, uh, and so really making sure that, you're actually set up. So, you know, it, are you, and, and now we have, you know, the whole quarantine in place too. So, oh. you know, am I talking to somebody in front of other people on a zoom call or am I talking to somebody one-on-one on a phone call? Am I texting somebody, you know, um, am I drunk or, or have I had a glass of wine before I'm just having this conversation or am I having it in the morning or the evening? Cause these all have a cognitive impact on us. Yeah. Speaking of, of somatic awareness, two of the very basic rules that have saved us so many arguments is, Oh, I'm hungry. Hold on. <laughs> we need to eat before, like yeah. literally we've sat down at a restaurant and we start to get into something heavy and I'm like, hold on, pause, let's eat dinner first. And then we'll talk about it. Or if we've had even one glass of wine, we just, we do not have important conversations if we're having a cocktail because my just, my filter is down. I'm not as compassionate. I'm sloppy with my language. I'm a total lightweight. Well, I have no filters as it is. So like, you know, um, it's funny. My joke was, I was like, oh, you guys should send Steve Mnuchin a copy of your book. Uh, Speaking of the right perspective, I was you know, all, all joking aside, you know, oh everybody God. in Congress should I probably get a copy in a room. Of I'd be more than happy to tell them a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Um, but anyways, uh, that aside, let's actually talk about the, the framework for having a conversation and then we'll actually apply it to a few tactical examples before we wrap things up. So you talk about, uh, you know, four sort of core elements to to what you call the OLED method, which are intentions, concerns, boundaries and dreams. Um, can you one define what those are and then look, let's look at it in the context of something as simple as I have a weekly meeting with my community manager, Melena. So how would I take this and apply it to that weekly meeting? We're really good as it is. Like we get shit done and our meetings are really short because I have like a 15 minute attention span for meetings, which she's figured out. But I'm like, okay, could I be better about this? And when I saw your framework, I thought, yeah, I could. And this is how. Yeah. So there, and there are a couple of pieces that kind of come into play even before you get into into the conversation. That's making sure that the topic is well understood, right? That we understand what we're talking about. So with that weekly check-in, making sure that that's really tight. So we're talking about the coming week. We're talking about the actions that we're going to take this week is um, actually, we didn't talk about it before. We didn't quite get to it, but one of the other sort of um, problems with communication is scope creep is because you don't have sort of a, a tightly bound, like, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. And the other piece I want to address is like the reason we have these four buckets is not, they're not arbitrary. They're actually well thought out. And we've, we've spent a lot of time sort of formulating this. And what we're trying to get at is what are the missing, what are the missing conversations? Because misalignment so often happens, not because there is a misalignment, not because there's like some fundamental, like you want one thing and I want another thing, but it happens um, much more often because there's a nuance to what we want. There's a nuance to where we are. There's some information that just hasn't been shared. And we're just, without that, without the, that information, it's sort of, you know, it's like trying to, you know, you know, plan something on, you know, via text message, right? You know, you're, you're just sort of like your, your band, the bandwidth of the communication is so limited. And so what we're trying to do is just sort of open up that aperture so we can take in as much information as we possibly can in a limited time, you know, without, you know, you know, burning all of our resources. So intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams are sort of the four buckets that we find to be missing so often. So intentions is really simple, which is, you know, why are you here? Why do you want to be a part of this? You know, um, it's very much connected to, you know, your values, right? So if you're talking to, you know, somebody who works with you, uh, you know, we assume they're working with you because they want to get paid, but we're also assuming that they're working with you for other reasons, either they have some skills, which is, which they enjoy using. Um, perhaps they're connected personally to your mission and your success feels like their success. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, then there's also maybe even some intentionality about like, well, where do I want, you know, like we're starting the week off. 
where do I want to be at the end of this week? I, you know, I probably want some things to feel different. I want, I want some things to have changed. I want to be less worried about this one thing. And I want to be, feel like I've made progress on this other thing. So just really getting clear on, and it's usually very simple, but like, why are, you know, why are we working at all this week? You know, like, why are we doing, why are we doing anything at all? Yeah. And, you know, we use it a lot when planning our vacations and the intentions may be as simple as, you know, we want to get out of the house for the weekend. We want to create some shared memories or, you know, it might be as simple as I feel obliged. I feel obligated to go visit your mom this weekend. And that's okay too. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be a positive intention. It's just factual intention. Yeah. I'm working this week because I don't want to get fired. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go into concerns and concerns, fears, worries. That's actually the easiest realm for the human brain to came, come up with. We are worry machines. We are worst case scenario thinkers. Um, but it's not always the easiest thing to say, nor do we make space for that in conversations. And we have an agreement. And anytime we lead groups or teams through this, we let them know, like in our marriage, when we share our fears or worries with each other, let's say it's a fear I'm worried that Bob will be angry about something or I will do something that will upset him. Even if my fear is about him, we agree not to take it personally, right? If he has a fear that involves me, I know it's not really about me. It's that our human brains come up with these fantastical worries. And we've learned, we learned very quickly at the beginning of doing these conversations that if we just put the fears out there, and actually, our, our shared friend, Dr. Sweeney Pillay, like he, he walked us through, like when you say your fears out loud in a safe environment, your brain hears you say it and it actually like calms your nervous system down so that eventually you do get better at the problem solving portion down the road. It just helps to kind of wipe the board clean. Ah, I have that fear. That's crazy. <laughs> now we can move on. And there's also yeah. this experience of people sharing fears as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, so we actually, we did this last week with a sales team for a technology company that your listeners will probably recognize. And, you know, obviously it's very interesting times for an enterprise, you know, technology and enterprise software company. And so we just had them in an anonymous way on a shared whiteboard online, you know, share all of their concerns. And one of the reflections we got was everybody was like, oh, wow, everybody kind of, we're all in the same boat, you know, like we're all having the same worries, the same concerns. Mm -hmm. The other place that becomes really valuable is that, um, you know, sometimes I'll ask teams that are beginning big, expensive projects, like given our goals, given our time frame, given our team, given our resource base, like, do we, you know, like what, what worries you? Like, do you, where, where, where might we fail? And sometimes that can actually identify, um, again, gaps in our thinking, or it can identify weaknesses in our plans and allow us to create, um, to mediate them rather than just asking people just to kind of go along with our, with our plan or the boss's plan sometimes. Wow. And then we have boundaries. Oh, and then we have boundaries. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a big one. <laughs> do a whole hour just on that. Yeah, Seriously. for sure. And again, something that we're not taught to have or how to define them, how to state them or how to stand up for them. But there's two really basic questions that I like to think about when stating or getting clear on my boundaries. One is what do I need to be my best in this situation and what the other is, what do I need to feel safe? So those two questions are very different, but they kind of create, you know, a nice set of boundaries to sit between. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if, if it's challenging, just think of them as starter boundaries. Like this is your beta boundary. It's okay that it's not perfectly worded. You'll get there. Yeah. And there's also, there's sometimes even a mundane element to boundaries, um, which is just sort of what other commitments do I have? Um, that might take precedence over this, right? So um, I was working with a team, you know, right when the pandemic started, we actually had to take a, a team of about 200 people remote very, very quickly. And a lot, a lot of these people were also, you know, all of a sudden they were also worried about parents. They were worried about kids. They're, they were, you know, forced to be stay home with their children while their children were distance learning. And I'm going to use putting that in quotes because a lot of these were young kids who were just sitting on iPads. And so people's lives really got upended. And so we, it actually, it was really wonderful in a way in that it forced a lot of empathy and a lot of really candid conversations about where work sat in someone's stack of life priorities. And they were like, look, 
I care about my job. I care about this work, but worse comes to worse. I'm going to pay attention to my, you know, my kid is having a really hard time with school right now and, and I don't have any help. And this is where my attention is going to have to go. And so just really getting clear on, on where, you know, kind of where the current project fits in terms of personal and and people's sort of priority stack. And finally, finally, we've done all the hard work. Yes. So we could have fun. Yes. (laughs) We get to share some oxytocin with each other. Dreams is my favorite part because you really get into the expansive thinking, big imagination space. And it actually has a very clear benefit. We put it at the end for a reason. You know, you've, you've unearthed and put all the cards on the table, possibly some very challenging, maybe even some conflicting concerns or boundaries. But when you share your dreams with each other, you do develop, you, you do start releasing some oxytocin, especially if you could do it in person, if you're lucky enough to do that. Um, but we recommend that you start with, you know, your dreams for yourself. Like what will be true if this were to go amazingly well for me? But also my dream for you in this and my dream for the team or our family. So you start to really, you know, not just make it about yourself, but everyone's success. And when you hear your partner's dreams, it's really hard to not want that for them too. You know, you you start to buy into their aspirations and they buy into your dreams and it makes you more collaborative. Like you start to really be a, a bonded team together. Yeah. So it, it's funny because, you know, when you're talking about concerns and boundaries, uh, and I was thinking of this in terms of a relationship or dating context, like, you know, I, I realized I have this like just, it, you know, after talking to this guy who taught me all about generational trauma, this sort of deep-seated fear of abandonment. And so where it would show up is if I didn't get a response to a text message, you know, like in a, a certain amount of time, my mind would literally go to all the worst case scenarios. But the reason I want to ask you this is that, you know, I think this might be more true for men in particular than women, but like the fear of being seen as needy if you express this concern of, oh, that bugged me. And, you know, and at the same time, we're just like, oh, God, that sounds super needy to say that. Um So, you know, what do you have to say to that? (laughs) Actually, actually, I have to say myself and the women that I work with, that is a huge fear of ours, too. Like we've been trained to be um, to have all the answers, to figure it all out ourselves and to put something out there that might be wrong or get a no is like death. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, and rejection feels terrible no matter how you slice it. I mean, I think that there's, there are strong evolutionary and neurobiological reasons that, that a person saying no, thank you to you can feel is, is, isn't just naturally going to feel terrible. Um, and I'll say that I think one of the values of having this conversation using this structure and doing it over and over again, again, I'm going to go back to Alex and Mike's commitment to have have the difficult conversations. If something is bothering one or both of us, then we talk about it and really leaning into it. And I always go back to, I can't remember where I heard it. I think it was a a Bhutanese um, uh, Buddhist teacher who said something like, you know, that if a problem can be solved, um, why be unhappy? And if a problem cannot be solved, what use is there in being unhappy? And there's a way that I found, we, we always think about this conversation as a way to have a controlled detonation of sort of relationship bombs, which is a safe way to, because the bomb is there no matter what, right? The, the, the problem is there no matter what. Sometimes it's imagined and, 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 and sometimes it's real, but whether it's imagined or real, it still kind of has the same reality to us and it's always, and it's there. But if we are able to kind of bring it forward and talk about it clearly and think about it clearly ourselves, we can either know that that bomb is there and kind of, you know, if we're still going to be in relationship, be it like, okay, this is something we've kind of agreed not to, you do your thing, I do my thing, like we're to dance around this particular topic. Um, or we come up with a way to, to manage it. And that manage it could be, oh my gosh, we are not, we are not partners, you know? Um, or it could be, we are partners. We just need to modify the relationship agreement in the, in, in some specific way. Um, and I will say, I you know I've been somebody who has stuck around. I think I've alluded to this a few times in this conversation, but I've stuck around both in jobs and romantic relationships much longer than I should have. 
given what they were and given who I was, right? Like we were just not a match. We were not aligned. And in many ways, I think if I have one life regret, it is the years that I spent trying to pursue or trying to make something work that just fundamentally didn't work for very real reasons, for very valid reasons, and not because either person was a bad person, but just because we were not a match. And because I was afraid to have the conversation, because I was afraid to lean into that difficult conversation. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, this has been amazing. Like I, I will have to revisit this time and again. My, you know, I, I think as I understood from the, the end of the book, this was not something, that, this is not like a life hack. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'd like to put that on the back of the book. I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that a well, lot. Yeah, it was. It reminded me in a lot of ways of what Susan, Susan Piper said about meditation. It was kind of the same thing. She was like, it's not a life hack, it's a practice. And, and that was one thing I, I got to see because I think that, you know, the natural logical tendency for somebody like me is to want to life hack this. Mm-hmm. Well, it, uh, but I have to say, in a way, it is a hack because it's a very simple tool that we use on very complex things all the time. And I I just have to shout out a tiny anecdote about the method that, you know, we've been using it with our son, who's now 13. We've been using it with him for at least seven years. And recently he just said out of the blue, I'm really glad I'm being raised learning to care about other people's feelings. Mm. And that was like one of the highlights of my life as a parent, for sure. And it's so, that gave me so much hope that, oh, like maybe we are ending the generational trauma, you know, that we picked up along the way. And he now feels like he feels comfortable being around tough conversations and witnessing our conversations, but also being a part of them because we've had them with him, but in this safe, structured way where he is feeling more and more capable of having them on his own. I'm like, wow, what would my life have been like if I had known how to do this when I was a teenager? Yeah. And I think one way to reconcile the hack versus the practice kind of dichotomy, which I think is is wonderful, is that the conversation itself is a structure. It's like, you know, we, we always, the analogy we use, it's like playing scales, right? So you can kind of sit down, you can have the conversation in a very ordered kind of way. Um, we still do that. We think it's we think it's really wonderful in that way. But what happens is over time is that that it can then sort of bleed into the way the, to the jazz that you play, the relational jazz you play. And I think it happens for me. I'm much more likely now to check in with myself before I get upset about anything and being like, well, what are my intentions here? Like, why am I and and what are my concerns and are they really material or are they kind of all in my head because they're equally likely to be the same? what are the boundaries that make me feel safe and what are my dreams for this thing? And sometimes I realize, Oh, my dreams are totally out of place for this thing that I'm doing. (laughs) So maybe I should reevaluate my dreams or reevaluate the thing that I'm doing, but it becomes a, it is, it is sort of a practice. And and I think like all good practices is that it weaves itself into all of the different aspects of your life in very subtle ways. Amazing. Um, well, I have one last question for you, which I've asked both of you before. Um, and this is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I know I'm, oh man, I don't know how I say this succinctly, but it's, it's somebody who like, they seem to be bringing all of their unique experiences and strengths and quirks out like they're showing the full range the fullest range of themselves that they can we're all weirdos we just don't (laughs) show many parts of ourselves we keep a lot of it secret the only normal people are people you don't know very well right yeah yeah yeah. i mean i have to say the same thing i think this is something that it's actually been showing up a lot in my morning, morning journaling recently it's like where can i be bolder in bringing out my own quirks and my own weirdness um because you know we all like our work kind of fits inside of inside of boxes but also but our personalities and who we are sort of blows those box boxes apart and i think when people are the most unique the most unmistakable the artists that i you know i don't patty smith is coming to mind right now for some reason right like the artists that really like break barriers or tom waits you know like people that really break barriers they do have a sort of technical skill they have it they have something 
but they really are bringing like their weirdness to the front. And I, I, to me, that's what makes people unmistakable. Amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, um, both of you, uh, the book and everything else that you guys are up to? The best place to start with the book is radicalalignmentbook.com. And then that will lead you to all things Bob Gower and Alexandra Jameson. But we also are bobgower.com and alexandrajameson.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.